Well, thank you so much for being here. It's a privilege to be here. So let me give you a little background. My wife and I, we have three kids. Terry uh, Jr., who is uh, on staff at the Church and Family Life, he is 28. Uh, Ty is 25. He just finished his master's degree in occupational therapy, got married a month ago. And uh, so we are expecting grandbabies. Come on now. Nothing else is important. And just have grandbabies, right? And then our daughter Tr- Trinity is 23. And and so she was six months old when we left here to plant the church in, in Sugarland. And so, uh, you know, we're very, we're very, very proud of our kids. And I realized that um, I wrote this book because I just realized we have a lot of young families coming into our church. And if you go around today, go to the mall, go anywhere, and uh, you just see that there's just a lack of parenting today. And people just don't know how to parent. And and I, you know, we were talking, we have all these first generation Christian people. They weren't raised in Christian homes. You know, they want so bad to raise good kids. They don't know how. And so this book is, is my effort, um, not to make you a perfect parent. You'll never be a perfect parent, but to get the big things right. And, and here's the responsibility of parenting is to put the things that need to be in our kids. It's their responsibility once they reach adulthood to actually do what you put in them, right? They're not robots, you know, that we can't make them do that. And so I'm going to, I'm going to do a couple of chapters of the book, just however, however far I get. Um, but I want to start with this. That the, uh, I had, there's a quote in your book that says, um, parenting is a very difficult job and few do it with excellence. And that's my quote. And I believe, I believe that sometimes parents have a good two or three year period where they're good parents, but it, it's really hard to be a good parent and to parent with excellence. I'm going to talk about that. The name of the book is Packing for Life, A Parent's Guide to Success. And so to understand this principle, you have to, you have to think into the future. Um, and Matt, you know, your kids may be in elementary school. They may be in junior high. They may be in high school. They may be toddlers right now. But I want you to close your eyes just for a minute with me. Close your eyes and just imagine that your child is now grown. They're 18 years old. And they're standing at your doorway ready to leave with suitcases in their hand. It's going to happen, right? Well, actually, sometimes it doesn't happen. There's millions of kids that aren't doing that. But anyway, we're positive here tonight. We're, we're positive, okay? So they're standing there. They're ready. They're ready to leave. And whether they're going in the military, they're leaving for college, they're moving across town to an apartment with their, with their friends. They're about to leave home, and they're going to leave home with all the material possessions, gadgets, things, clothes that they have. But I want you to think about something else. And here's the other thing, that they're also leaving with a set of imaginary suitcases. And the imaginary suitcases are all the things that you put into their lives. All the spiritual and natural principles that you taught them from the time They're born until the time they're 18. See, our kids are watching us. They watch how we live. They watch what we do. And so we are supposed to not just give them material things. We are supposed to be packing their suitcase with principles of how to handle hardship, of how to handle adversity, of how to work hard, and so many things so that when they leave, they're they're prepared. They're prepared for life. And so, you know, as parents, we need to understand it, it, it's not just what, what we say that in fact impacts our kids, but, it, but it's how, it's how, we, it's how we live. And uh, when what we say lines up with what we do, how many know there's a big difference? How many parents come on? You've been guilty. You said one thing and they saw you do another. Shame on you. That is just absolutely terrible. So <laughs> we've done that, right? But when, when we, when we can, now, I want to tell you something. Just if you say something, if you tell them something, you don't actually do it sometimes, that does not make you a hypocrite, okay? We have this wrong thing. A hypocrite is when, is when basically you're a deceiver. You talk to one people one way, and then you purposely go over here and do something different. If, if we're saying the right things and sometimes we don't live up to it, that does not make us a hypocrite. It makes us a sinner who needs forgiveness, okay? So a, a, big, a big difference there. But whenever, whenever our speech, what we say, lines up with our actions, what we do, it provides a powerful illustration for our kids. And so what we need to do is we have to figure out, okay, what are the important things 
that we need to give to our kids? What are the important things that we need to teach our kids? And then we need to try to tell, to speak that, and physically um, to teach that. For example, there you'll you'll never you'll never teach your kids everything. I'll, I'll never forget uh, our son Terry. He moved out and he bought a house when he was like he was young because he got all these scholarships for college and uh, he didn't use the, the, some of the college money we had for him, so he used it to put down and buy a house. And so one day, um, our washer and dryer wasn't working, so Tracy went over to his house and. Um, you know, she was going to do the lint thing and she, you know, done the dryer and she couldn't pull it out. And she finally pulled it out and there's layers, layers. And, and, um, she said, Terry, when is the last time you, you know, you know, you checked your lint trap? He said, what is a lint trap? <laughs> right? So a 24 year old guy doesn't really care about the lint trap. And so she said, well, he said, well, I, you know, I've lived here for a year or so. That's probably it. Now, how many of you know that whether or not you knew about the lint trap, you know, that may not seem so important in life, but it sure helps your dryer, you know, last a little longer. So what I'm saying, there's a lot of things to learn in life and, and your kids are going to always be learning things. You're not going to teach them every single thing. But if we get the big things, if we teach them the macro level things, uh, they will be able uh, to, to go through life and really make a difference. So. When Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, I guess it, it, it came over this way too, but when it, when it hit Houston, at our house, we got, we got 47 inches of rain. We got 47 inches of rain in 12 hours. So, and our house did not flood from the rain, but we live by the Brazos River, about a quarter mile away. So four days after Hurricane Harvey was gone, the waters of the Brazos River, they, they overflowed the banks and just started flooding homes all over, and our home our home ended up with 18 inches of water in it. So, I mean, it was everything. We, they were driving, FEMA was driving boats in my neighborhood. They came to our house, picked us, picked up my family, and then, um, I stayed there for a while. Then I, then some kayakers took me out later. But, uh, so anyway, our, our house just totally flooded. It was, it was just so demoralizing. I've never been so depressed in my life. 36 hours later, we're finally able to get in there. Your house stinks. It just smells terrible. And, um, an interesting thing happened. Some of our friends, about 25 of our friends, 25 or 30, people who say they love us and they care about us, they showed up at our house at 8 a.m. And in six hours, we, we gutted our whole house. We pulled up every floor in our house. We pulled up cabinets out of our house, toilets, all the furniture in our house and took it. As a matter of fact, there were more than 100,000 homes in Houston that had all their possessions out front. It was, it was just an incredible thing. And so in six hours, our house went from just smelly and all this to everything is, everything is clean. We, we're spraying Clorox in there. They have dehumidifiers and fans down. So now it's just a process of drying out and we can start the rehabilitation part of our house. And Trace and I joke because the people from church were, were so effective in taking it out. We, we, we couldn't find that we'd be looking for things three months later. Hey, where is that? And like, oh, the flood, man. They took out what they were supposed to and more. I mean, they cleared our house out, man. Just took, took it out. And, but it, the amazing thing, here's the amazing thing is that our friends who say they loved us, when we were in need, they cleared their schedules. They cleared their schedules. And you know what they told their kids? You're not going to a movie. You're not going out on a date. Our pastor's in trouble. We're going to go help him. And they showed up at 8 a.m. And by 2 a.m., everything was totally done. So my question is, what was packed in those teenagers' suitcases that day? Here's the principle. When your friends are in trouble, you quit what you're doing. You don't go to the mall. You don't go to a movie. You don't go out on a date. You quit what you're doing and you show up and you stay until it's done. And so these are the things, I'm just trying to give you some illustrations, some things that we have to begin, uh, you know, to get into our kids' lives. So Proverbs 22, 6, it says this, Train up a child, famous passage, in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. So let's talk about that word old for just a minute. According to the Jewish law, at the age of 13, a boy is no longer considered a minor and is responsible to fulfill all the Torah's commandments. I mean, to, they call it a bar mitzvah. And, and the, the young man has to have learned 
chapters and chapters of of the Torah of the Old Testament, you know, to pass the bar mitzvah, and uh, it's bar mitzvah. It means one who is obligated to to mitzvah observance. So basically, it's a rite of passage for Jewish childhood into manhood. And, and Tracy and I have been to Israel multiple times, and we've actually been there when a bar mitzvah ceremony procession was going by. And it's just crazy. I mean, there's dancing, there's celebration. And what they're saying is, this is no longer a boy, it's a man. We're going to treat him like a man. So let's talk about the word old. Train up a child in the way they should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. The word old there is 13. 13 is is the deal. When they're 13 years old, they're old. And so the problem in Western cultures in America, uh, we are not doing a good job of taking advantage of the early years of childhood. So by this statement, it's like we're supposed to train up our children from birth until 12. I mean, everything that they're supposed to have in them, every spiritual principle, every natural, we're supposed to put that in there. And then from 13 to 18, see, parents, I don't understand, that's the coaching phase. You put everything in there until they're teenagers. And when they're teenagers, that's when you start coaching them. And letting them, they start working a job and they come home and, you know, here's what kids typically say. Oh, you know, this job sucks, right? And that's when the parent, we get to say what we want to say our whole lives. Welcome to the real world. My job does that sometimes too, right? And we get to work on them. Look, your role in, in, in working a summer job is to make money so you can buy a car, so you can just, it's not to make friends. It's not to like everybody. You're there just to work. And, and we begin to teach people. And see, a lot of times parents, they fail to coach their kids. They tell them what to do, but they don't, they don't coach them, you know, you know, in that. And so very, very important. So let's talk real quickly about why is parenting so difficult. So at the beginning, beginning of your book, I put a quote, parenting is a very difficult job and few do it with excellence. So let's talk a few minutes and discuss this statement. Why is parenting such a difficult task? And I think parenting, just to be honest, I think parenting is one of the most difficult tasks that God gives us to do. It's, it's easy to have children. It's hard to be a parent. And so let, let's talk about that for a few minutes. I want you to know that you're not, you're not alone. If you feel overwhelmed with parenting, you're not alone. Every parent has felt that way. The first uh, reason it's difficult is the time frame involved. The most difficult element of parenting is the time frame involved in the parenting process. You know, our kids will live in our homes for at least 18 years. And, and so this means that we have to find a way to be consistent over many years. So think about this. Most of the things we do in life are short term. You have you have you're under pressure because there's a contract due at work. You have to deliver a software package. And so a team is working around the clock. And maybe it's three months, four months, maybe even six months. You deliver the package and, and it's over. The pressure's over. Now, another, you're going to have another deal after that, but, but it's over. It's over. You finished it. You completed it. You know, you passed the test. Uh, but, or, or let's say my, my, my boys hated, they hated doing yard work. More than anything in life, they hated doing yard work. And I would be putting fertilizer on my lawn and they would say, Dad, that is a bad idea. That's a really, it's going to grow more now. They hated weeding flower beds. You know, they hated weeding flower beds. So, but you know the deal. It's, it's spring. You need to get your house on order. So you tell your kids, Hey, y'all aren't doing anything this weekend. Oh, the whole family pitches in. You know, you, 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 you weed, weed the beds. You put fresh mulch down. You plant flowers. You mow the grass. You trim the bushes. You do all this and no one's enjoying it. The, the kids think that parents enjoy it and they, they, no, no one. In, I mean, you know, there's probably a few six, few of you that are kind of sick and, you know, you enjoy doing all that stuff, but most people don't, most people don't like that, right? But it's done. It's done. If your body gets out of shape and you're like, man, I got to take better care of my body. I've, you know, I'm not feeling well. I've gained weight, a high cholesterol. If you change your diet and start going to the gym, you know, within a short time, two weeks, three weeks, six weeks, your body starts responding. But with parenting, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 18 years at least. And so it, the time frame involved, we have to be consistent for a very long time. You can be a great parent until they're 10 years old. If you check out for the next eight years, 
there's going to be problems. And so, you know, it's the time frame involved is 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 very is very very different. You can't take a vacation from parenting. The second thing is parenting is only one of your responsibilities. I mean, think about this. There's a lot of things that we have to do. Are y'all busy? In Lafayette, are y'all busy? In Texas, we're busy. You're busy. You have you have bills to pay. You have jobs to do. You have marriages to try to cultivate. I mean, you have cars you got to repair. You have houses you have to upkeep. I mean, there's all these things. If parenting was the only thing we had to do, could you do it well? You sure? Like if someone says, I'm like, hey, you know what, Brandon? I, you know, I just feel bad for you, Pastor. I know you're busy, so listen, I'm going to take care of your whole life. Just parent your kids. I'm going to give you money. Don't worry about it. Just whatever you need. I'm going to wash your cars. I'm going to fill the gas tank up. I'm going to mow your grass. You know, I'm going to send your wife birthday presents. You know, don't worry about anything. All you have to do is parent. It would be easy, but we live in the real world, and there's real, real pressure. I mean, there's real pressure, and you know, we're battling. Man, I need to. We have to make money to support our family and we have to spend time with our kids. I mean, there's just this constant thing. And so, again, that's one of the problems. There's, it's one of our responsibilities. Uh, the third thing is many of us were raised in dysfunctional homes. So let me, I hope I don't embarrass you. You don't have to. But I want to see a show of hands. If you were raised in a home that displayed dysfunction. So see, that's, that's about 75% of the congregation, you know, and, and so, now here's the thing, Let, let's define dysfunction. Dysfunction doesn't mean that it's not working, it's not functioning, it just means it's not functioning correctly or properly. Okay? So I mean, there's all kind of dysfunction. Maybe your parents weren't Christians, so they didn't know the Lord. Maybe your parents were Christians. Uh, but maybe there was fighting in your home, constant fighting in your home. Maybe there was alcoholism in your home. Maybe you were raised uh, in a broken family where, you, where there was divorce. Maybe you were raised in a home, um, unfortunately, where there was abuse of some type. And so, so we come from these homes. And the majority of people come from dysfunctional homes. Homes that they function, it's kind of like a functioning alcoholic. They're able to go to work, but... There's issues all around. And so what happens is we come to Jesus and we want to raise great kids. No one wants to mess up their kids. No one wants to do that. But the problem is we have never been taught how to parent. We've never been taught God's principles. We're, we're just swinging, swinging for the fence and doing the best we can. And so, uh, if you get the, if you get my book, I promise you by the end of it, I, I will have laid out everything you need to do, all the big things that you need to do. Um, you know, to to be a good parent. What what this is what I find, and and I've I've counseled with thousands of people that have kids. Is what happens is usually when we've been raised in dysfunctional families, we overcompensate. Like if your parents were like if your dad was a disciplinarian, it's like this is the way it's going to be. You know, then usually what you do is you go the other way, and it's like you just give your kids a lot more. Rank free reign than they should. And where, where's, where's the functional place? In the middle. Where there's love and a relationship, but there's also some discipline. So a lot of times, you know, if you're raised in poverty and you didn't have much, as you start getting things, man, one of your things is you'll start giving your kids things. Because we just, the, the normal thing. And so we have to learn, okay, just how I, how I was raised, I gotta put that on the shelf. I've gotta figure out what is the correct way because we want our kids to be healthy. We want our kids, uh, you know, to, to be balanced. So let's talk about why parenting is important. Many parents don't understand the importance of, of the parenting process. Uh, you know, the thing is, it's a good idea to have kids. After all, isn't that what married couples do? We're supposed to do. And, uh, you know, many, many people. Okay, let me, let me just stop here for a minute. If anyone that deals with people's kids, realize how touchy parents can be. I mean, if you're a teacher, the kid's not the problem, it's the parents, right? You know, I, one time we had one son that always pushed the limits. He just always pushed the limits. He's just like me. He has all my flaws and all my incredible talents. He's just like me. And so one day, one day Tracy is, uh, she's sitting at home. She has her cell phone rings and she picks it up. Doesn't know who it is. And it's our son. And he's like, 
Hey, mom. She's like, Ty, who's number, whose phone number are you on? Oh, my teacher. And she said, uh, she said, um, why are you, why are you calling? And he, he said, well, because my teacher wanted me to call you and tell you that I don't have the ability to keep my mouth quiet, you know? And so in anyway, so we, we, we have some of those. And so we, we would tell all of our, not just, you know, all of them, Terry, Ty, and Trendy, we would tell their teachers, look, if there's a problem, you just call us. We know that our kids aren't perfect. And we're going to support you. We are going to support you. So why, why is, you know, why, why are we so touchy when people tell us there may be a problem with our kids? Why, why are we so touchy? Why are we so defensive? Instead of just listening to what they have to say, especially when people are trying to help us. Well, here's the thing. The, the whole, what I want you to understand is that, you know, your kids don't belong to you. They belong to God. And if you're a born again believer, nothing you have belongs to you. Your money doesn't belong to you, which should make it easy for you to be generous because it doesn't belong to you. You're just giving God's money away, right? We have to, we have to change our perspective. Psalms 127, three through five, it says this, children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. So the simple truth is that God blesses our lives with children as a reward or as an inheritance. And we are given the responsibility to raise our kids for God. And I don't, I'll never forget this. Brother Francis, when I was here many years ago, Brother Francis, one of his famous sayings is this, I believe we're going to be judged very thoroughly and harshly for how we raise our kids. We're given just a tremendous response. Hey, if you didn't like that quote, that was from Brother Francis. So it wasn't me. I'm just passing the good news on to you. So let's talk about the goal of parenting. I find it very interesting that so many people are working hard to parent their kids, but they don't have a clear goal of what they're trying to accomplish. I mean, if you are trying to get in better health, usually we say, oh, I want to lose 10 pounds or 15 pounds, or I want to eat better. If if we're in our career, we want to reach this goal. But many times with, with kids, we, we just want to raise good kids. What's a good kid? Well, what's a good kid? What is, what is the goal? You know, I had this young man to come to me and he said, Hey, you know, uh, yeah, I'm just praying for a wife. I'm praying for a wife. I said, Well, what kind of wife do you want? He said, I want a good wife. Define what good is. What is, what color hair do you want her to have? I said, Pull out a pen and a piece of paper. How taller do you want her to be? What color hair do you want her to have? What type of personality do you want? And I helped him, and I said, now, is, 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 is that your thing right there? Is that what you want? He's like, yes, sir. Yes, sir, pastor. That's how you pray. You're welcome. I just helped you find your wife, right? But we, we don't know, and, and so let's think about this. Tracy and I, we, we had our goal for parenting was this, and it's biblical. We wanted to raise our kids to love God, love people, and fulfill their God-given purpose in life. We didn't want our kids just to learn how to make a lot of money. It's easy to raise kids and give them education and go make a lot of money. We want our kids, number one, to love God. Number two, to love people. You know, all I have a multicultural church in Houston. We have 20 different na- nations. We have mixed marriages. We have everything in our church. And I was teaching on racial relations one day. And I said, hey, I want every, everyone to raise your hand. Raise your hand if you heard something disparaging about another ethnic group. 90% of my congregation raised their hand. White people, black people, Hispanic people, Asian people, Nigerian people. I mean, people from all over. So, you know, we wanted our, ki- we wanted our kids to love God. So Tracy and I, we didn't say bad things about any group of people in our home. We talked positive about everything. And I want to challenge you. There's some things, there's some racially discriminative things being said in Christian homes, and that breaks the heart of God. And how do you think your kids are going to respond? So we have to raise kids who love God, who love people, and who want to fulfill God's purpose for their life. I mean, this is, this is, this is, uh, will really help you. Let's look Matthew 22, verse 37 through 39. It says this, one of them, an expert in the law, tested, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So in that scripture, we, we see this. Love God, love people. Love God, love people. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's handiwork. Create in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So live by purpose that we have a purpose. God has a plan for our lives. And, and as a parent, as a parent, you should not, you should not push your kids to, to do something, a job, because it makes money. You should find out what, what, what is the passion of your child? What are they good at? What is God's plan? for them and push them in that direction. I tell parents, you know, if we, if your kids do what God has put in their heart to do, they'll never lack for finances. They will be so good at it. They will be so passionate about it that, that, you know, um, you know, maybe, maybe they start out being a teacher and then they, then they continue their education. They become an assistant, assistant principal, then a principal that, then, you know, maybe they go up and, and they, they do things above the principal level in the, in the school department. And so very, very important. So according to the Bible, the goal of parenting is to raise kids who love God, love people, and fulfill their God-given purpose in life. And, and it's just that simple. So if, if, if our number one goal, the number one goal, those are in order, if our number one goal is to love God, if the number one goal is for you to get your kids to love God, what that means is you have to love God. We talked earlier about our speech and our actions have to line up with our behavior. And the big problem in church is that we have, we have parents who want their kids to love God, but they don't want to love God like they want their kids to. And so, listen, I'm going to tell you a secret. Here's the deal. If you set the standard here for your kids, they're probably going to reach right here. They're usually going to go a step below where you put, so we got to put it high. We got to put it high. And I'm telling you, they need to see that we love God. They need to see that when situations happen in life, we, we are, we are trying to handle them according to God's word. And, and if I'm just being honest, this brings us to a tremendous obstacle that we're facing in our country, in the world right now, is that most parents do not have their focus on God. I'm just being, I'm just being real with you this morning. I've, I've, you know, I've done this in, in my church as well. This never goes well. People never stand up and clap, but you know what? If the shoe fits, we need to put it on and we need to walk in it, you know? The bottom line is, uh, we need to make spiritual nurture and development of our children the number one priority. It needs to be over sports. It needs to be over hobbies. It needs to be over fishing. It needs to be over hunting. It needs to be over the NFL. We need to make the spiritual nurture and development of our children the number one priority. That the number one thing we're praying for is that our kids love God. The number one thing we pray for is that our kids see God through us. I mean, I mean, you gotta bring it and you gotta bring it hard. You gotta bring it. You know, you gotta bring, you know, we, we can't have any of this stuff like, oh, we go to church once a month or we go to church when it's convenient. No, we gotta bring it. We gotta bring it. A, a funny story. I did, I just had a thing that whenever my family went on vacation, we always went to church somewhere. We always went to church. Now they would always say, Dad, let's just home church. You're just so awesome. And you know, they didn't want to go to church. No, we're going to go to church, right? We're going to go to church. And so one day we're in Red River, New Mexico. If you've ever been to Red River, it's one, one street about a quarter mile long. And so there weren't many churches. We went to this one church. We go in there. Terry, they're, they're 16, 13, 11. And, um, you know, it kind of started off a little strange there. They're, they're coming in. There's a, we're sitting in there and we're the only ones in there and they come in. There's a procession and there's flags waving and all this. And, and Terry leaned over to me and said, Dad, I, I told you this was a bad idea. This was a bad idea. But anyway, we went to church. I'm like, Hey, don't worry, son. It won't last too long. He's like, Oh no, I think they're going to go a long time, Dad. They're going to go a long time. So we have to turn the tape. We have to, we have to really begin, you know, um, to turn the tables and really, and really begin to, to bring the focus on God. I'm going to go to, uh, the next thing is actually chapter two. I believe I can finish it up. And, and the title of this chapter two is this. Everything starts with a foundation. Everything starts with a foundation. 
Um, you know, if you want to build something of lasting value, it's essential that you have a secure foundation. You know, think about it for a minute. If you want to build a house, if you want to build a business, a marriage, a relationship, or a child, it's vital that you build from the ground up. Uh, the foundation has to be structurally sound to hold the weight of the structure you want to build. So if I want to build a house, let's say I decide to build a house and architecturally I spend a lot of money, I buy the best products, the best, um, not ingredients, but the, you know, the best wood and the marble and all this stuff, and I build this incredible house. It's beautiful. But if the foundation isn't solid within a few months, you're going to see cracks in the walls, the foundation, the floor is going to start to shift. And you can fix that. You can put putty and paint on walls and fix the cracks, but they're, they're going to come back. And, and the problem is that the foundation, the foundation has to be strong enough, uh, to support the weight of the structure that you want, that you want to build. And so if we want to build strong kids, it has to start in the foundation. You don't build up here. You start with the foundation and you build a foundation so that no matter what happens to them in life, they'll be okay. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 7, verse 24 through 27. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and this is what He says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So Jesus, he lets us in on a very important secret of life. And here's the secret. We're all, every one of us, we're all going to go through storms where our foundation is tested. Every one of us. Every one of us. And, um, you know, it's, and, and what we see here is the storms are the exact same. Both houses went through the same exact storm, storm. Rain came down, flooding took place, and a great wind beat against the house. And although the storms were exactly the same, there were different outcomes for the houses. One stood and one fell. And again, what I want you to know is this. If you, if your house collapses, it's not because of the storm that hit you. I mean, I'll have two people in my office, you know, back to back days. They have the same issue, a death of a loved one or a bankruptcy. And one of them, they're just devastated. And the other one's like, you know what? This is tough, but we can make it with by God's grace. One of them had their foundation on the rock, which is Jesus. And the other people had their foundation upon, upon, upon shifting sand. And so, you know, our journey through life, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be filled with disappointments. Everyone, we got to start telling our kids, listen, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be hurt. Somebody's going to let you down. Somebody's going to betray you. Somebody that you trust is going to, uh, you know, bite you in the back or, or whatever. You, you know, you may be fired from a job, but, but that's, you know, that's not the issue. The issue, the question that has to be answered is, do I have a foundation that will sustain me during the storms of life? When the storm passes, and they always pass, will my home still be standing? Now I'm going to read a scripture, and you're going to wonder what in the world does this scripture have to do with parenting? And, well, let's find out. Let's read it and see. Revelation 3, 14 through 18, it says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold, and I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so you can be rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Let me ask you this. Does this sound familiar? I, I would say to you that the American church, that this is, 
This is a prophetic message years before of what's happening in the Western world. This is, this is a prophetic message. This, this lays out a case of judgment against, against the American church. And against, I say American, against the Western churches who, who have, who have fallen into materialism, consumerism. So think about this. The American church has bought into materialism, consumerism, and, uh, you know, could you, could, could we, could we, if we're just honest, I mean, I'm a pastor, could we identify that a lot of Christians, a lot of Christian churches in our area are lukewarm? I mean, could we? Okay, if you're not sure, I can help you. Um, you know, today, today the average American attends church one time a month. It was 1.2 before COVID, so COVID knocked 0.2 off. So, you know, um, only 12% of American Christians honor God with their money, tithe. Fewer than 20% of Christians who say they're born again, who say they attend churches, less than 20% of people actually serve serve in church. So we have 20, you know, 20% of people serving in church, 12% of people giving in church, and the average churchgoer goes one, one time a month. I mean, if that's not a picture of complacency, again, I'm not saying you're complacent. Probably if you're here on Wednesday, you're probably a spiritual giant, right? You're probably going to heaven. There's probably gold stars by your name in heaven. But I'm saying the culture that we're living in. And what happens is, you know the reason why the church is not influencing culture today? is because culture is overflowing into the church. I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, I, I, every week I'm meeting with young kids who they were raised in church and they just live, they're just shacking up, they're just living with people. Every week, like it's like no big deal, you know? Or you go to church, that's no, no, it's no big deal. What's happening? Culture, which is just, you know, just evil and it's just overflowing into the church and the church is watching all this stuff going on in culture and we just get to the place where we think it's normal. It's not normal. The church is actually supposed to be different from Hollywood. It's supposed to be different from our, from, from, from things going on, you know, around us. And so again, again, we, we have to make, we have to make a shift. We've gotten way off course and there's a need for a course correction. And, and, um, we've just placed so many things ahead of Jesus. And, you know, I think as parents, we have to own it. We have to repent. And, you know, we have to put, we have to put God first. And again, uh, if it's the NFL or if it's whatever hobbies or whatever it is, band or sports or fishing or camping or golf, you know, uh, we have to give advancement, you know, to the kingdom of God. And we really have to uh, solidify this foundation. So I've taken some time to explain the importance of a foundation for one simple reason. You can't give your kids something that you don't possess. Okay, so if you don't have a foundation, hey, stop right now. You may need to go to your children and say, man, I just, I want to repent because I've been wanting you to live in a certain way and I haven't, I haven't been living that way. So we have to get our foundation right. Then we're able to pass it on. So, you know, if, you know, if our kids need, our kids need to have their foundation built on Christ, it's the most essential Essential ingredient for their long-term success. Um, but again, you can't tell them to do something that you're not prepared for yourself to do. So let me let me tell you, teach you real quickly about how to, how to how to give them a good foundation. And and I'm talking about really uh, just developing a biblical worldview. Uh, Brandon, could you give me that water right there? Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, is there one right there? Okay, thank you. Uh, Hey, I apologize. I'm on medicine for allergies and it makes me just really, uh, really uh, dry and thirsty. So anyway, let's talk about the foundation of a biblical worldview. So what I want to let let me try to explain this to you. Um, But there are different there are different worldviews. And so what we want to try to do is give our kids the foundation of a biblical worldview. So a worldview, it's in your books, is a set of assumptions held consciously or unconsciously in faith about the basic makeup of the world and how the world works. So 
Basically, our worldview is the lens through which we see life. As we travel through life, you know, we have to, we develop a philosophy of life so that we can make sense of it. You know, every day when things happen in life, your worldview, the lens through through which you see life, it helps you determine and make sense of what is happening around us. So our worldview is how we process life and basically make sense of what's going on around us. And so every time something happens in life, we filter it through the lens of our worldview. And so from birth, we begin to formulate a worldview, usually from our home of origin. So your kids, if you have kids, they're developing a worldview in in your home. And, And generally, generally, if we can do a good job of developing a worldview, a biblical worldview in our home, and, and we, we teach them how it works, we teach them why it works, and we teach them why it's better than some of the other choices that they have, you know, generally, they'll keep that throughout their life. But if you're teaching them a worldview, if you're telling them about a worldview and you're not really living it, or if they see, you know, hypocrisy or things like that, then what happens is when they get older, they're going to experiment with some other worldviews and, and, and see which one they, they want to live by. So that's the problem. A lot of people that are raised in, in families that actually believe a biblical worldview, they're leaving home and they're taking a secular worldview. Now, that's what's happening today. The problem is they're, they're, they're jumping over to a different worldview. You know, so if a worldview is forced on us, or we never see credible evidence of truth uh, that supports it, they usually switch during adulthood. Uh, a guy by the name of Ravi Zacharias, he's a great Christian apologist. Um, he says that a defendable worldview must satisfactorily answer four questions. The origin of life, the meaning of life, morality, and our destiny. So with this in mind, let's take a look at some of the major worldviews that people choose to live by. And, and basically, if you want to just make it simple, there are three worldviews that, that infiltrate our, the earth today. You, there may be some little ones, but there's three. The first one is secularism, and that's the worldview that dominates America and in, in, in Eastern Europe and so forth. It views reality as ultimately physical. Now, I, this is in your book because it's a little heavy, but I'll, I'll work with you on it just a little bit. So it focuses on the unity of nature. Its modern roots were planted in 19... 19- in 20th century Europe, Charles Darwin. He is the high priest of secularism. He believed that life, the origin, is the result of interactions of matter and energy, time and chance, or evolution. That's what he believed. Secular, secularists affirm that truth is empirical, that truth is what the senses can perceive. So again, morals are relative and values emerge from social consensus. Consensus. So here, secularists, here's what they believe. Like the Bible has a list of absolute morals, right? This is right, this is wrong. But it, see, secularists, they develop from a moral, from, from a societal consensus. So that's why, okay, oh, this lifestyle is no longer a sin. This is acceptable because we say that it's acceptable. Are, are you with me? How many things now today, society doesn't view them as wrong, I mean, and it's getting very, very sick. It's getting very, very sick. Uh, for, for example, I think everyone, most everyone in the world would think that, you know, pedophilia is a terrible thing. They're now trying to classify that as a sexual normalcy. Well, that's just the way that they're born. No, there's some demonic things that are, that are going on there, right? Okay, I didn't mean to get off on that. But that's the difference. Secularists are like, you know, morals, they evolve. Well, we're evolving. You hear that? We're evolving and now this is not wrong anymore because we, we say, we come together and say that it's not. In his PBS television series and his book, Cosmos, the late Carl Sagan stated with scientific certitude, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. So the prevailing worldview in America today, according to mainstream media, is, and what is taught in the majority of schools is secularism, that the world came into existence by forces of nature, interactions of matter, energy, and energy, time, and chance. So, And furthermore, our morals and values are determined by social consensus, not the Bible or any other thing like that. So to the secular mindset, there is no God. It's all about the universal laws of nature that control life, not God. So in their minds, everything is about physical, the physical world. Man is 
alone in an impersonal mechanical world. Uh, man is now free from all moral absolutes. So secularism believes that there's no ultimate meaning in life and there is no final destiny. When you die, you die, and there's nothing after physical death. So let, let me just say, um, let me say something here. Like you wonder, you know, as a Christian, we're supposed to be good stewards of everything. We're supposed to be good stewards of the earth. We're supposed to be good stewards of everything we have. But have you, like the secularists today, you know, they're, like they're really going over the board just crazy about like global warming and, and taking care of the earth like Mother Earth, you know. And like to them, the universe, the earth is God. Like that's what it is. And you know, what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us that this earth, this world is going to burn. It's going to burn with fire, you know. So again, we're supposed to take care of it, but no matter how good you take care of it, it's not, it's not eternal. We are, and so, but secularists see that it's all about the world, it's all about the universe, you know, it's all about, that. that's what it's about. The second one is animism, and, you know, this includes its modern form, the New Age movement. It's rooted in the Far East and the world's folk uh, religion, so spirits emanate everything, and, and everything moves toward oneness of spirit, and, you know, the world is, is unseen, truth is hidden and irrational, so basically... Uh, you know, this is who, who Hinduism, animism, Buddhist, they, they're the main ones that do this. You know, everything is a God, nature, animals, people. So I, I, one time I, I was, there was these people in Sugarland. We were renting a church building, uh, before we had a building, we were renting a daycare. And, you know, these, these, these Hindu people were coming in after us. And so, uh, you know, they were chronic thieves. Like if you left anything there, they would steal it, destroy it, whatever. So I forgot my coat, man. It's a nice coat. So, and I was a church planner, man. I was poor. I was going back to get that, that coat and went back there and their pastor was just determined to talk to me. He wanted to talk to me. I didn't want to talk to him. You know, he wanted to talk to me and he's like, look, this is our statement. I think this is what we believe. All things are moving toward oneness. All things are moving and the only evil is someone who doesn't believe that. He said, by the way, what was your name? I said, my name is evil. I will see you later, right? <laughs> That's a true story, by the way. People think I exaggerate, but you can ask Tracy. So let's go to the biblical worldview. It's called, what we call it is thea, theism in academic world. So it sees ultimate reality as personal and relational. That God exists, that He created a universe of physical and spiritual dimensions, seen and unseen worlds. So theism believes that, that one God created man and the world. That's the origin of life. That God transcends the world and yet, yet is imminent in it. So transcendent means He's outside of creation and imminent means that He is present within His creation. So the biblical, theism is the biblical worldview that we're wanting to instill in the lives of our children. Um, it's a story of creation as told in the Bible. Uh, the biblical worldview answers all four questions with certainty. Our origin comes from a creator. Our lives have meaning and purpose. Morality is set in the Bible with absolutes. And we are moving toward an eternal destiny. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Created means to form something out of nothing. See, sometimes, sometimes people tell me, like, well, I'm just so creative. But you're, you're not creative. Well, you made a table out of wood, but you didn't, you didn't like just make the tree appear, right? God did. So God, God create means to, that you form something out of nothing. And that's what God did during creation. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Psalms 33.6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Colossians 1.16 For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether, uh, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created for him, uh, through him and for him. So theism is the biblical worldview that God created our world and it gives specific instructions on how we're to live our lives. Now, let, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna wreck your world right now. This wreck my world is probably gonna wreck 
Brandon's world, but the Barna Research Group has been conducting survey for 20 years or more to learn the worldviews held by Americans. And the results are just, are just depressing. Um, let me read this. It should be in your book. For the purposes of the survey, they're, so they're telling you what a biblical worldview is before they do their research, was defined as believing that absolute moral truth exists, the Bible is totally accurate in all of its principles it teaches, Satan is considered to be a real being or force, not merely symbolic, a person cannot earn their way to heaven by trying to be good or do, doing good works, Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth, and that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, creator of the world, who still rules the universe today. In research, anyone who held all these beliefs was said to have a biblical worldview. Okay. The research indicated that only 9% of all American adults have a biblical worldview. 9% of America. So 72% say they, you know, they believe in him. 9% believe those. But what was even worse, when they went into the church, who people who claim to be born again, only 19, one in five people who were sitting in churches have a biblical worldview. One in five. And so that's, you know, this is the greatest failure of my generation. We've built multi-million dollar facilities. We've done all these things, but our kids are growing up and they don't believe the essentials of the faith. They're not believing that Jesus, you know, that He lived a sinless life. And so, you know, again, if we, if our church is not preparing people apologetically and if we're not if we're not, you know, conveying the message of the gospel, if, if we're not even convincing people that sit in the pew in our churches, how are we going to convince other people? And I tell you, when I found this, like my youth ministry, I'm telling you, uh, they, 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 they just hitting this all the time. And parents, you know, a lot of parents that come to church, a lot of them, you know, I'm shocked by this, that they don't have their kids in student ministry. We, we have student ministries every week and, and probably half the kids in our church, their parents just don't bring in whatever. And I'm like, man, you don't understand how bad it is out there. I mean, your kids are getting bombarded every day. If you have a boy with a phone, if you have a son with a phone, every day someone is showing him pornography. We just, we got to get our, our heads out of the sand. And so as parents, you know, you need to do this. You need help. We need to get them to, we need to get them to churches that believe in God and believe the Bible and are teaching them the Bible. Youth ministry is not just about having fun. It's about instilling doctrinal truth in our kids. And so I'm telling you, we've got to get with the program. The, the, we're letting the world indoctrinate our kids. We're letting the world take over and be the teacher of our kids instead of us, you know, stepping up. I'm telling you the most probably the most incredible thing that happened during COVID was that parents started learning what the school boards were teaching their kids. And I mean, all across our country, it doesn't matter if it's Pennsylvania, Ohio, parents have just had enough. It's like, this is ridiculous. Teach our kids how to read and write and leave morality to us, you know? And so anyway, uh, let's talk, let me talk to you real quickly got about 10 minutes left on about how to develop a biblical worldview. So we, 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 we talked about what a biblical worldview is. We've talked that most people are not, even in church or not, don't possess a worldview. And listen, I mean, let's be honest, we're in Louisiana here, right? So more than 19% of people in, in your church are going to have a biblical worldview. I'm in Texas, it, it's still. But what that's saying is we're in the Bible Belt. When you average all the churches together, that's the number they get. They did. So yeah, it's going to be higher in the South. It's going to be higher in Louisiana and Texas. But when you go up high, you know, if it's averaging 19, that means in some states it's going to be tremendous, dramatically less. So how to develop a biblical worldview. Number one, Christianity is not something you do. It is who you are. And most Christians I talk with have a misunderstanding about what it means to be a Christian. They think that being a Christian is something you do. If you go out and ask people, what does it mean to be a Christian? They say things like, well, you know, you should go to church. Uh, you know, you should treat people well. You should read your Bible. You should give to the poor. You shouldn't use profanity. And, and all, those are good answers, but they're just misplaced. That is what a Christian should do. 
That is not who a Christian is. A Christian is somebody that has given their lives to the Lord and, and, and God has just transformed them. Their lives were basically blown up, you know? If you read the prophets, you read Isaiah, you know, I'm in the presence of God and his, like, he's just blown up, like God just came in and just blew up and transformed his life. So, uh, a Christian is someone that has a love relationship with Jesus and Jesus is number one. Like they had, a, they had an encounter with Jesus and now they don't care so much about making money. They don't care so much about being popular. They care about Jesus. There's a love relationship with Jesus. So being a Christian is about having a relationship with Jesus. And yes, all those other things that you should do, you should go to church, you, your, your speech should be pure, but that's a result of God working your life. So you can do all those things and still not be a Christian. And, and so we, we've just, we've just really gotten things out of, out of proportion. So, uh, you know, Christianity, again, it's a love relationship. Uh, Jesus comes in. He's the CEO of your life. And at this point, uh, you experience total peace, joy, security. You encounter a paradigm shift. Your life priorities begin to change. Second Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Uh, the old has gone and the new has come. So there's just been, there's been a transformation in your life. And see, Christianity is not raising your hand one day in church because you feel bad and you feel conviction. Christianity is giving and dedicating your life to Jesus. It is a, it's all in. It's an all in encounter. And listen, if we're not all in as parents, our kids will never be all in. The problem is with the parents. The problem is not with the kids. We have to be, we have to be all in. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. This is, you know, a classic verse on how to parent. These are the commands, decrees, and the laws, the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and your children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all of his decrees and the commandments that I give you. And so that you may enjoy long life, hear, O Israel, be careful to obey, uh, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord your God. Uh, the ancestor, the Lord your, let's see, the Lord, the Lord, oh, the God of your ancestors, I'm sorry, uh, promise, promise you, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And so, and I, th I think what this is saying is we have to structure our homes around the Bible. And, uh, you know, we're busy. And what Tracy, here's what we did. And I encourage you this. When our kids were small, every night, every night, we ended the night with Bible stories. And I had three different kids, three different age groups. So that means three different stories. And, you know, by the time my kids were five years old, they, they could tell you any story in the Bible. You could not tell them a story that they didn't know. You, I mean, you could not. It didn't matter what name you pulled. And we started getting them in the Bible. When they got to where they were pretty proficient readers, you know, I think by, by, the time, by the time Terry was 10 years old, he had read the Bible through. And he read the Bible through three times before he was 13 years old. Uh, all of my children read their Bibles through. See, what you have to do is you have to start it before they get into sports and things, before the teenage years. And, and we made it a big deal. Um, you know, they would read their Bible through in a year. They did it on their own. And at the end of the year, I believe one year, Terry, it was a big deal, the iPod and the iPod. We went and got him an iPod. It was like 500 bucks. And, and, um, we just celebrated it. And people, people, my friend told me, ah, oh, you're paying him to read the Bible. I'm like, well, you're paying your kid to be a garbage collector. You pay him to take out the trash, you know? So I have that gift. But hey, we need to show our kids that it's important. That it's important. Sure, I, you know, he did it anyway. I just rewarded him because I thought, man, how many 10-year-olds have read their Bible? You know, how many 10-year-olds have done that? And um, so we started doing it. Do you know that 2% of Christians, 2% of born-again Christians have read their Bible through? 2%. 
we we just we we just not reading today, and then have Bible have biblical conversations in our normal activities there at dinner time, working in the yard during vacations, going to church. You know, Doctor Dobson uh, he said this. He's like, look, one of the most important things for your family to do, one of the most important things, is to have dinner together every night. It doesn't matter if it's pizza. It doesn't matter if it's ramen noodles. Sit down for 30 minutes and eat together. Families are so busy. Incredible conversations happen when you just take time to sit together. And I encourage you, you know, sit down together. Tell them they're not allowed to bring their phones to the table and actually have conversations. I remember when we would be just be doing things and and going on vacations, and my kids would just ask me spiritual questions. Just, we're working out in the yard, we're doing something, we're going to a football game. They did, and, you know, if you love Jesus, your conversations will come around Jesus. And we didn't make our, we didn't have two-hour Bible studies with our kids. We didn't make them do all that. I mean, they were going to church, they were in youth group, they were doing things, but we did try to make ourselves available for conversation. So here's the second thing. You need help establishing a biblical worldview in the lives of your children. And I've talked about this before, so I'm I'm not gonna say too much about it, but I believe that I believe that that every family should go to a church that ha- that that has family values, that provides things for their children, and that you should require of your children that they're involved in student ministry. That's just that's just what I'm gonna say. It's like I have parents tell me, "Well, you know, I'm gonna make my kids do anything." I'm like, "Let me tell you something. If you don't make your son brush his teeth or take a bath, he never will." Why do you do that? We know why because you don't want to be embarrassed by him stinking, right? Because he will. He doesn't care at all. He will stink, and he will be happy for it. You know. So again, again, what I'm saying is, I'm not saying to make your kids do something. What I'm saying is. If you're doing it, and this is what our family does. So I was 14 years old. I was we had I was in youth group. My parents went to small group every Wednesday night. They would drop us off at student ministry. And so one day I told my dad, hey, you know what? I am not going to be able to go to youth ministry tonight. He said, well, why? I said, well, I have an emotional dilemma. You know, this little girl I like, she broke up with me. I'm just devastated. I'm heartbroken right now. So I'm just not going to be able to go to student ministry. And my dad said, get in the car. Get in the car. If you're old enough to have a girlfriend, you're old enough to be emotionally stable enough. You're going to go to youth group tonight. You're going to go next week. You can go the next week. You're not going to sit at home and feel sorry for yourself. And I'm like, why, 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 why do parents, why do we enable our kids? Why, I mean, if I'm going to small group, they need to go too, right? This is, and my dad says, say, we're Darnells. We go to church. He went to church. We went to church. And you know what? Because of that, I made the best of it. I went there and I went with my friends and I told them how bad she had treated me. And all. It wasn't Tracy, by the way. It wasn't, it wasn't Tracy. So. Let me close with this. Um, you need to educate your kids so they can defend their biblical worldview. And again, the main the mainstream media today has bought into the secular worldview. And they just, like, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, if you say you hear from God or you believe in God or you believe in the Bible, you know, they will they will label you as intolerant. They will label you as a bigot. But what I want you to know is there, there are some of the smartest people in the world today. There are PhDs in every field of science today that believe that creation is the best explanation for how we're here. I want You won't hear that, but I'm telling you that. And apologetics is is the branch of Christian theology that aims to present a historical reason and evidential basis for Christianity. And so people like C.S. Lewis, Ravi Zacharias, Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, you need to introduce yourself to these kids. Now, there's a guy by the name of Lee Strobel, and I, I really like his works because it's very simple. They're, the books are small, it's easy to read. And so before we our kids leave our home, before we send them off to college where they're going to be indoctrinated in things. We need, we need to show them, take them to the This is why we believe that creation. This is why we believe in a creator. And 
give them factual things, apologetics, defending the faith. A lot of Christians just tell their kids, oh yes, creation, and that's how it happened. They go off to college and you hear, you know, you have a 101 biology professor who's a God hater. You know what a God hater is? A God hater is somebody, uh, who, you know, they don't just not believe in God. They're just, they're just, they're filled with anger and hatred and they just spew their, their beliefs on people. So kids go, they're like, well, gosh, this guy has a PhD. Certainly he knows what he's talking about. I know a lot of educated people who don't know what they're talking about. I know a lot of educated people who wasted their money. Okay? So anyway, listen, uh, that kind of gives you a jest of the book. I do want to say, um, I do not make money on this book. I did this because I just wanted to make a difference in the, in the lives of young parents. And so I encourage you to help me. Uh, if you would help me spread the word, put this book in people's hands, I'd really appreciate it. God bless you, Pastor Brandon.